It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Today, a story from Peter Kafka and the latest episode of Land of the Giants. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. We're seeing the beginning of a very powerful, important plan. Back in 2019, Donald Trump and Tim Cook got together for a photo op. They were celebrating the fact that Apple was making things in America again. Yeah, that's right. You're seeing the president live now with Tim Cook, and they're looking at one of these Mac Pro units uh, at this Flex facility here in Austin, Texas. And the audio is not so good here. What you're seeing here, the product, the Mac Pro, is an example of American design, American manufacturing, and American ingenuity. So... Picking apart this scene, some of it's based in reality, some of it not so much. For starters, that factory wasn't new. It had been operating since 2013. That factory was already there, and it had already been making Macs, and they just let him take credit for it. Nilay Patel was editor-in-chief of The Verge. Anybody that followed my campaign, I would always talk about Apple, and I want to see Apple building plants in the United States, and that's what's happening. Tim Cook is standing at a factory and allowing Trump to lie about what that factory is and what it does, and just kind of going for the ride. Call it capitalist theater, geopolitical capitalist theater, because even though it seemed like Cook wasn't doing much there, he was just smiling, really, he was actually accomplishing a lot. He was convincing Donald Trump that Apple was all about making America great again, but he was really protecting Apple's business in China. And protecting Apple's business in China is crucial for Cook, Because contrary to that grip and grin, Apple doesn't really manufacture its stuff in America. Yes, it makes some of its Macs in Texas, but it makes almost all of its iPhones. That's Apple's real business in China. And Trump was in a trade war with China. That's a trade war that continues with Joe Biden. And Cook wanted to make sure that Apple didn't get caught in the crossfire. The play acting worked. Apple ended up dodging a tariff Trump instituted on Chinese-made goods, which was a huge win for Apple's iPhone sales. Tim Cook, it turns out, is very practiced at getting along with people in charge. So he operates an enormous manufacturing concern in China. He has made enormous concessions to the Chinese government. That means, among other things, building a labor system that pays millions of people meager wages for very hard work. It also means making compromises with an authoritarian regime about privacy and human rights, ideas that Apple and Cook say are core to their values. And it means the company's most crucial infrastructure could one day be threatened by a change in Chinese politics or American-Chinese relationships. Today, we're talking about Apple and China and how an enormously rich and powerful company and a really rich and powerful government got so closely linked and intertwined. And to do that, we're doing something a little bit different. Today's episode is a joint venture between Recode and the Information, the Excellent Technology and Business Publication. So we're going to bring in Wayne Ma, one of the information's reporters in Hong Kong, He covers China and the tech companies who work there. He's been doing that for more than 10 years. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Peter. Wayne, let's set the table by talking about the scope of Apple's operations in China. Why is China so important to Apple? Well, China's important for Apple for two reasons. One, Chinese consumers account for around 20% of Apple's annual sales. And two, the vast majority of Apple's products are assembled there. So it's a huge market for iPhones, and then all those iPhones are made in China. That's right. And how did we get there? Why? How did Apple come to be so closely linked to China? Well, a lot of this is because of Tim Cook. Cook is the CEO of Apple now, but when he joined Apple in the late 90s, he ran its operations. And he shuttered Apple's factories in Singapore and the U.S., moved a lot of its supply chain to China, 
and bet the farm on China being the sole source of Apple's supply chain. And for China, it's not about just assembling the iPhone. All the components are made there, from the screws and the printed circuit boards to the glass screens. Um, a lot of these factories are in close proximity to one another. The entire ecosystem is there, not just the assembly, but all the components. So we often hear about China as sort of a place where you get cheap labor, and Apple disputes that. Is that fair? Well, it's partially true. There are definitely cheaper places that Apple could go to, Vietnam, India, Indonesia, for example. Uh, but it's still much cheaper to operate in China than the U.S. You know, the average factory worker, you know, assembling Apple products makes around $500 a month. In the U.S., they could make three or four times that amount. Also in China, factory workers working on Apple products can work 60 hours a week, six days a week. Workers in the U.S. wouldn't do that. So when Cook is asked why Apple builds products in China, Cook plays up the fact that uh, China has lots of manufacturing talent and skill that has kind of disappeared over the years in the U.S. You know, in, in the U.S., you could have a meeting of tooling engineers, and I'm not sure we could fill the room. In China, you could fill multiple football fields. Wayne, how many people does Apple have to have working in China if it's producing all of its iPhones there? It seems like you need an army of employees. One of the beauties of Apple's supply chain is that it doesn't actually own its own factories or employ people directly. It relies on contract manufacturers. And so it's indirectly responsible for employing anywhere from between 1 and 2 million workers at any given time. That's a huge chunk of China's manufacturing workforce. China has maybe only 110 million manufacturing workers. So if Apple isn't employing these folks directly, who is? There's companies like Foxconn and Pegatron. You know, they're two of Apple's largest contract manufacturers. You know, Foxconn is responsible for assembling the vast majority of iPhones, maybe between 60 and 70 percent of them. In recent weeks, a number of reports have raised serious questions about the workers there, the giant factory. We first started to hear about Foxconn about a decade ago. There were reports of brutal working conditions and a rash of, of public suicides from Foxconn workers. The long hours, the pressures, the low pay, the life. And a growing number of these workers are either killing themselves or trying to. And Foxconn doesn't know why. All this media coverage over the suicides prompted Foxconn to reduce hours, raise wages, and improve their working conditions. But the conditions are still tough for workers there. Many of these workers are migrant workers. You know, they travel inland from villages in China. They're away from their families for long periods of time. They live in dorms at these facilities, you know, often four to six people a dorm. They're still working 60 hours a week, six days a week. Their work is repetitive, it's boring, it's all done by hand. Many of these workers, they want to quit within two to three months. So Wayne, let's be clear. Are the working conditions here unique to Apple and Foxconn and this supply chain? I mean, most of the stuff in my house is probably assembled in China. Is this still standard for the way things are manufactured in China? It is. It's not just Apple, but all the products you buy, uh, consumer electronics at least, are made within these conditions. But I would argue that Apple kind of stands out because of the size and scale of its production. So we understand that Apple is really big and we get that this is how a lot of work is done in China and that because Apple is such a large employer, it's doing more of this work than anybody else. Does Apple have particular challenges with its workforce? Well, a lot of this relates to Apple's internal production strategy. Internally, it's called the ramp. And what that means is that if the iPhone is released in September, Apple suppliers have to start massively hiring in July and slowly build up hiring until the release date. And then when January comes around, demand is lower, and so they don't need these workers year-round. This causes a lot of factories to turn to extraordinary types of workers, like student and temp workers, which can be easily exploited. And in some cases, Apple's suppliers have been even accused of using forced labor. 
let's address those one by one. What does a student worker do at Apple? A student worker is somebody who can be as young as 16 years old. He or she is doing it as an internship, so they're not paid as much. And technically, they're not supposed to work overtime hours or nights and weekends. They're not supposed to work 60 hours a week like a normal worker. But the problem is that some of these factories do force them to work nights and weekends. And in some cases, their work has nothing to do with their area of study. So it's not really an internship. It's just a job. And this is in violation of Chinese law and Apple's own supplier code of conduct. Student worker violations have happened multiple times at Pegatron. That's one of Apple's largest suppliers and assemblers of the iPhone and iPad. But each time it happens, the reaction by Apple is the same. You know, Pegatron cops to the problem. It promises to change. Apple threatens to withhold new business from Pegatron. But Pegatron tells Apple they fix things and it's business as usual until the next violation is discovered. So you're describing a recurring problem here. You've also talked about temporary workers. That seems pretty benign, at least in the U.S. What does a temporary worker mean in China? Temp workers are employed by agencies that are contracted by the factories. So they're even another layer removed from Apple and have even less oversight than full-time workers. They're more vulnerable than full-time employees, as many of them don't have the same rights and benefits as them. In some cases, temp workers have had their salaries or bonuses withheld until they've completed their work. Many of these temp workers, they can't afford not to be paid. If they don't get their money, they're stuck and immobilized. China says this works okay, but you can't have too much of it. That's right. China says factories can't employ more than 10% of their workforce as temporary workers. But the reality is that many factories go way above that limit. In some cases, it's 40%, 50%. And Apple has known about this for years and hasn't enforced those limits. You also brought up the idea of forced labor, which sounds not good. What is forced labor in China? In China, there's this region called Xinjiang, where over the last few years, China has been persecuting ethnic minorities there. They've been sending thousands of these ethnic minorities to factories outside of Xinjiang to work. But these ethnic minorities, they are constantly surveilled. They're not allowed to leave the factories. They're forced to undergo political indoctrination while they're at the factories. And to be clear, there's credible reporting that alleges that the Chinese government is forcing ethnic minorities to go work in these factories? Right, that's correct. And are they getting paid for this work? They are getting paid. But it's not their choice to work there. They are compelled to do so. Yes. And this is crucial. Do we know that Apple suppliers are using this kind of forced labor to make Apple products? We don't. The best we know is that in many cases, the addresses where these workers are are the same addresses that supply Apple with components and products. They may be working on Apple products. They may be working on something else that Apple has nothing to do with. Yeah, that's right. But regardless, these companies are in Apple's supply chain and Apple is working with them. And when you and other journalists ask Apple about this, what, what does Apple say? Well, they give a variety of answers. In some cases, they've denied it, um, even though there's been clear evidence and video footage of it at the factories. Sometimes they say they couldn't find evidence of it. Other times they say they couldn't find evidence of it on their production lines. In July 2020, when Tim Cook testified in front of Congress, he was asked about this issue. And Mr. Cook? We wouldn't tolerate it. We would would terminate a supplier relationship if if it were found. After the Foxconn suicides, Apple greatly increased the size of the team in charge of monitoring its suppliers. It set new and tighter policies for supply chain conduct, and it also increased the number of audits on the factories it uses. One of Apple's initiatives was to create this academic advisory board that was filled with researchers familiar with China labor issues to help Apple look at its supply chain and how to solve some of these problems. One of the people they brought in was Eli Friedman, a sociologist specializing in labor in China. It was a pretty unusual opportunity to be able to be granted access 
to Apple's supply chain. Uh, Apple itself is famously not super transparent. And many of the companies that produce goods for Apple are extremely difficult uh, to gain access to. So one of the issues that Apple wanted the Academic Advisory Board to address was the issue of overtime and turnover. Many workers were leaving within two or three months. Some of the workers were working way more than 60 hours a week, which was against Apple's rules and the Chinese government's rules at the time. In one case, Friedman actually visited a Pegatron factory in China. What he found was a pretty typical factory environment. It didn't seem like the workers were unhappy. It's brightly lit. It's well organized. This, this doesn't appear anyway at first glance to be you know, such, a, such a bad job. We got to speak with a couple of workers in kind of focus groups. I didn't find it particularly illuminating. That being said, the, the workers, you know, had been picked by management and, uh, you know, any social scientist will tell you that that produces the potential for bias. So I wasn't putting too much stock into what the, the handful of workers that we spoke with uh, had to say. It left me kind of wanting to know more uh, about what might be going on um, uh, in, in the facility. He actually proposed an ethnographic study where he would actually spend a few months living with the workers at the factories in their own dorms uh, to try to build a rapport with them and to get real insight into what their lives were like. And I put together a proposal and uh, I submitted it uh, to Apple and it was rejected. Why did they reject it? You know, what did they say? I'm still not really sure. <laughs> but uh, my sense is that, this is just speculation, but my sense is that uh, the supplier was not interested in, you know, having some foreigner kind of poking around uh, in their dormitories uh, and, and that Apple didn't see it as worth their while to expend political capital pushing for this. But again, that's, you know, that's speculative. I also started to come to the conclusion that, uh, that the board was not really going to be able to do the things that I thought it ought to. After his proposal is shut down, Friedman also proposes raising wages for some workers to see if it gets them to stay at the factory longer. Apple isn't very responsive to that. Eventually, he feels like he's unable to do a lot of the research that he wanted to do or make any meaningful impact uh, on the matter, and he decides to leave the academic advisory board. I think Apple wanted this board, but they weren't prepared for the types of research that the academics wanted to do. Um, in many cases, you have to get buy-in from the suppliers, and Apple can't force these suppliers to agree to some of these studies if they don't want to. By the way, Friedman says the board actually disbanded a few years ago. Big picture, you've laid out convincingly that, that Apple has problems in its supply chain, that some of the working conditions are bad, and Apple has says they want to root some of these problems out. How much work is Apple willing to put into fixing supply chain problems and, and fixing labor conditions? And, and how much unpleasantness uh, in that supply chain is Apple willing to tolerate? Well, former Apple employees tell me that Apple will fix problems in its supply chain if it's easy, but it won't if it's hard, especially if it's going to disrupt production or impact the supply of products like the iPhone. Apple has very strict policies when it comes to supplier violations. It gives suppliers up to 90 days to improve or fix their problems. If the suppliers don't seem willing to change, Apple says it'll cut them off. But over the last decade, Apple has removed only about two dozen supplier facilities for violations. But it works with more than a thousand facilities in its supply chain. Apple's the most valuable company in the world. It built this system. The vendors it employs are dependent on Apple for the bulk of their revenue. Can't Apple just make them make significant permanent changes? Not really, and that's because a lot of the components are custom-made, and so there's only a few suppliers that can make them, and it takes years to develop these suppliers to certify them and build them up. So Apple can't just leave one and go across the street and get those components from like another company. 
One example of this is uh, the companies that make the glass screens for the iPhone. Um, Apple is dependent largely on two suppliers. One is called Beale Crystal, the other is called Lens Technology. Both of them have come under fire by labor rights activists and researchers for problems in the supply chain. Beale Crystal has been under fire in the past for having workers operating under hazardous conditions. Um, Lens recently has been accused of using forced labor from Xinjiang. But in both cases, Apple continues to use both those suppliers because without them, the iPhone wouldn't get made. So why can't Apple just pay its suppliers to adopt better labor practices? The vendors are willing to improve if Apple pays them more. But former Apple employees tell me that Apple is reluctant to do so. Apple wants the vendors to pay for the improvements themselves. The vendors don't want to spend the money or increase their costs. But Apple also doesn't want to pay more because it wants to keep its costs low and margins high. A lot of people believe Apple is successful because it designs great products that people want to buy. But a lot of its success comes from how it manages its supply chain, which is world-leading. The company has two to three suppliers for every single component it makes. Apple pits these suppliers against each other to drive costs down. They care about every penny, and they squeeze their suppliers super hard. People working at Apple suppliers, they've told me that they've had to show Apple all their costs. You know, from the price of electricity that they spend to the cost of their rent, Apple buys a lot of the equipment used by the suppliers so that suppliers can't pad their bills even more. So this system works incredibly well for Apple. It's made them enormously profitable. There's a statistics out there that says Apple represents about 20% of smartphone sales every year, but it captures 90% of the profit in the industry. Tim Cook built a complex layered supply chain system in China. And it has been a huge success, but this is a two-way street and it's worth knowing what China gets from Apple in return. Head over to the Land of the Giants feed for the second half of the story, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.